Welcome to the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal Author Insights Podcast. I'm Dr. Matthew Wapit. I'm the DDNJ Editor-in-Chief, the Executive Director of the Utah State University USED, and it's also my privilege to host this podcast. This podcast is actually one of the favorite things that I get to do because it gives me a chance to talk to so many different researchers and professionals who are out in the field making a difference. In fact, many of the people we have on this podcast are literally changing the world in their own quiet way. And I think our interview today is a great example of that. People who are really flipping the script and thinking in different ways about how do we do diversity, equity, and inclusion better. So, but before we jump in and I give you more information on that, I do want to give you some background on this podcast. This podcast is actually part of our ongoing commitment to increase the accessibility of the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal for a wider readership. Um, as most of you probably know, not everyone has the time to sit down and read an entire article these days, let, let alone an entire issue. And more and more people are choosing to get their information through podcasts and audiobooks. In fact, I think I've said this on other podcasts, but this past year I've read, which I think is how you say it, more audiobooks than I have physical books um, because I'm always moving, always walking, going somewhere, and I can listen to audiobooks while I do that as opposed to having to sit at my desk and, you know, or sit in a chair and read an article or a book. So, uh, anyway, that's the purpose of this podcast. And the launch of the podcast means that you can access DDNJ's content while you're on the go. You can listen to it while you're traveling. You can listen to it while you're doing chores around the house. You can listen to it, um, yeah, in your car as you're driving. And the whole idea is to make this more accessible, more easy for these ideas to get out there, but also make it easier to share on social media and other online platforms. Sometimes it's hard to share these articles and you know, a podcast link can easily be put up on social media or, or shared via uh, email. So anyway, that's kind of the purpose for doing this. Um, and you know, in the very, basic sense, one of the big reasons is that this makes the information more accessible. Um, although, yes, we include plain language summaries, and we try to make sure that from a technical uh, standpoint, the journal's uh, information is as accessible as possible. But again, reading is not what everybody does. And this podcast allows us to present this information in a more accessible format. So with that said, I'll say this up front. I'm going to say it at the end. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe. That helps us. Uh, leave us a rating and a review if you can. And please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. Your ratings and reviews and shares help us uh, get this work out to a broader audience, um, which is going to help all of us in the long run. So another reason that we decided to do this podcast is that academic research can sometimes be pretty dry, black and white on the page. And we like to acknowledge that authors uh, and uh, others, other contributors are more than just a name on the page. And we want to help you get to know the people behind the publication. 
We want you to help get a better understanding of the diverse voices who are working in the field today. We want to provide some insights into what motivates these authors, where they get their ideas from, why do they do what they do, and um, yeah, and how did these projects come to be? Behind every article, there's a story, and there's, in many cases, years of work that has gone into making these articles come to come to light. So anyway, that's part of the purpose too. And we want to make sure that this is something that, you know, we're providing a holistic view, I guess, of the research process. So today uh, I'm excited because I have the opportunity to visit with Nathan Rabang and Dr. Vanessa Hiratsuka from the Center for Human Development at the University of Alaska Anchorage, you said. Both Nathan and Vanessa are two of the authors on an article in the most recent issue of DDNJ uh, called Disability Decolonized Indigenous Peoples Enacting Self-Determination. Now, this most recent issue of DDNJ is, I think, and I know I'm biased, but a huge deal. Uh, it just came out a couple of days ago, but it's a special issue focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was a partnership with the AUCD Multicultural Council, and all of the contributions in this issue are coming from diverse voices who are really trying to enact um, you know, the basic principles of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion in their work. And uh, Nathan and Vanessa are... Uh, no exception to that. Now, I do want to acknowledge also that Nathan and Vanessa were only two of the authors on this article. So uh, Nathan and Vanessa at the University of Alaska Anchorage, you said, but Amy West from the University of Southern California also was, a, was an author, and Eric Kurtz at the University of South Dakota, and Jim Warren at the University of South Dakota also uh, contributed to this article. And again, uh, this was a this was a huge collective effort, but I think it's an article that makes a really important contribution to the way we think about uh, working with indigenous populations in the disability field. So anyway, uh, but again, we don't have Amy, Eric, or Jim with us today, unfortunately. I have Nathan and Vanessa, and it's my privilege to sit down and talk to them. So by way of introduction, Nathan uh, Rabang is a indigenous researcher at the University of Alaska Anchorage. Nathan was born on Denaina land in Anchorage, Alaska, and he's enrolled in Shue Village in southern British Columbia. In addition to his role as a researcher, he helps coordinate the Alaska LEND program, and Nathan's work is largely focused on issues of disability, critical indigenous theory, and bioethics. Dr. Vanessa Hiratsuka also works at the University of Alaska Anchorage Center for Human Development. She's an indigenous researcher and assistant professor of clinical and translational research and co-director of research and evaluation at the UAAU said. Dr. Hiratsuka is Dene from the Winemem Wintu, born for the Tangled Clan. She is also an affiliate faculty member in the University of Washington's Department of Bioethics and Humanities. She received a bachelor's degree in human biology from Stanford University, a master's degree in public health from the University of Alaska Anchorage, and a doctoral degree in public health from Walden University. 
She is also currently the co-chair of AUCD's Council on Research and Evaluation, and she has extensive experience coaching and mentoring community and university-based researchers and practitioners in ethical, social, and legal implications of genomic research and clinical and translational research and developing culturally adapted chronic disease and behavioral health interventions in tribal health settings. So uh, both Nathan and Vanessa were a joy to talk to, and um, it's just really exciting that I've had a chance to, to get to meet them, but to better understand um, this important work that they're doing. So anyway, this episode's a wide-ranging conversation. I think it provides some really important insight into uh, how we work with Indigenous populations in the disability field. Um, and it also includes, I think, some fun behind-the-scenes insights and innovative ideas that can be used to improve the work that you're doing in your respective teams and organizations. I would highly encourage you to go check out um, this article. Again, Disability Decolonized. We'll be sure to put a link to it in the show notes. But anyway, without further ado, here is my interview with Nathan and Vanessa. All right. Well, thank you, Nathan and Vanessa, for joining us today. Um, we're really excited to talk about your article in the latest issue of the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal. So before we jump in, um, could you tell us a little bit about your background with the USED Network and DD-related programs? How did you come to do this work? And why don't we start with you, Nathan? Um, I started working at the Center for Human Development uh, about a year ago, uh, a little bit more actually. I started off as a research technician, so I was helping out with a lot of uh, survey work uh, across the state, and then uh, the research professional two position opened up, and I applied and uh, was very happy to join the team full time. Awesome. What about you, Vanessa? Um, so. I am an Indigenous researcher, and um, for my work life, I've been largely working in uh, in tribal health, and um, and so you know, with the background, I'm Dene, I'm Navajo on my father's side, and Winnemum went to on my mother's side, um, and I've had a calling to uh, do support of Indigenous communities as part of my work, um, and for the past twenty some years I'd been working as a program manager in public health programs, an evaluator and a researcher. Um, and then I was a little bit uh, burnt out from running research projects, uh, biomedical and behavioral research projects. Um, and it, in those indigenous communities across um, the state. And I thought, well, I'd like to have a bit of a shift here. Um, and that was happening just as COVID hit. I started interviewing for other jobs, um, thinking that I wanted to, you know, have a, a change of pace, um, a different view on population health, um, and, and see what else was out there. How can I add tools to my toolbox and maybe um, support communities in a different way? And I uh, interviewed for a bunch of positions here in Anchorage because this is where we live. Um, this is where I was raising my family and and the um, community that I wanted to continue supporting. And uh, on a whim, I took an interview for a temporary researcher position um, 
and at the University of Alaska Anchorage in the Center for Human Development. And, um, and I was offered the position and I thought, why not? This sounds like a, you know, a, a nice thing to do, um, utilize some research skills, but uh, figure out my way in life next. And, um, and so I took a job where I wasn't quite sure if they were going to keep me on or not. Um, and, and things like that. Um, but I stepped out of my comfort zone and, uh, and started with this center. And then uh, over time realized that I really had a lot to learn about the disabilities community in Alaska. I realized that I wasn't thinking about diversity as well as I ought to as a, um, as a public health professional um, because I wasn't inclusive in my mind as uh, to disabled communities. Um, and I really needed to, um, I think, enhance that aspect of my practice. And so uh, the university was kind enough to offer me a faculty position and a co-directorship of the research and evaluation group. And I thought, thank you very much. Uh, and so I accepted that position a couple years ago and uh, got involved with the USED network around the same time. And, um, and that's what I've been doing since. So it's been a, a great expansion of the work that I had been doing. And um, I'm really fortunate to be able to bring in some of the indigenous research, indigenous health research um, and bioethics work that I was doing elsewise now um, and intersecting that with our disability studies and some of the training programs that we have too at the center. That's awesome. It's amazing that you have that lived experience perspective and then you can marry that with your professional work as well, which I think is reflected very well in the article that you wrote here. So we're excited to dig into that. So you mentioned diversity, Vanessa, um, and how maybe when you came to this work, you weren't quite as familiar or maybe as competent in it as maybe you should have been. Why is it so important for disability-related programs to be more mindful of issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion? And why don't we start with you, Vanessa, this time, then we'll go to, then we'll go to Nathan. Well, I mean, my background's in public health. And, um, and so we're looking at populations in that, in that discipline, you know, the, the full population. And so frequently I've, I've been a state health worker um, an evaluator of a bunch of different types of health programs, education programs. And um, when the people that I've worked with, um, those communities, those uh, programs, school districts, cities, villages, tribes, um, have been looking at their population so frequently they'll uh, have targeted programming um, and activities for racial ethnic um, minorities but not for individuals with disabilities, in particular individuals that experience intellectual and developmental disabilities. And, um, and so when I you know, work with our indigenous populations, when was it like three out of 10 individuals that are indigenous might also have uh, a disability or more, um, one or more disabilities, I just was realizing that I was neglectful of an entire subgroup of, of our population, and and a subgroup isn't the right word, but um, but you know those that's the language that tends to happen there in, in public health, and um, and when we aren't specifically thinking about people and inviting them to the table, then work isn't happening there, and when it is happening, it's not happening the way it ought to with um, the 
considerations for the needs of that group of people and um, and how they want it to be done and what their interests are in um, what does health look like? What does wellness look like? What should my life look like? Um, and so, you know, that that's really the the stuff that I've been learning about, that I've been speaking to, and that I've been, um, I think, really blessed with um, having people in my life here at, at our USAID and, and across the nation um, set me straight on. And I really appreciate that. I appreciate the candor that um, self-advocates in particular and families have, um, have shown me and have given me so that way I can be a better ally, a better supporter, um, and do better research and evaluation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're uncomfortable talking about these sort of things. And the fact, you know, it, it does take courage for people to speak up and say, hey, I'm here, pay attention to me. And I mean, it is incredible, um, the people who take those risks and really do highlight the fact that we can do better. We can. So Nathan, so Nathan, let's go to you. What about, what are your thoughts? Why is it so important for disability related programs to be mindful of diversity? Uh, yeah, to begin, the disability community is super diverse, and we touched on that in the in our paper, and we also and also uh, indigenous populations uh, over all across North America are very diverse too. Just for just as an example, the um, Alaska Native population is so uh, culturally diverse among like within the state, but it are also so different from uh, the indigenous populations from the lower forty eight or from Canada as well. Um, as another example, my, uh, my background, my, uh, tribe is located in Southern British Columbia, enrolled in Shui village. Um, and the, uh, experiences that I've had there are so different from the experiences I'm growing up in Alaska, especially that, um, since I'm, you know, I was born in Alaska, so I'm American and the, the, the culture from, you know, just trying to get to, uh, my family and in Canada is a lot harder for, uh, is, is, is difficult. It's, it's difficult to get there sometimes, especially during COVID. And um, programs in Alaska need to, uh, need to focus on diversity uh, or cultural uh, competencies with their, with their programs because uh, they're the indigenous peoples and the, and the disability community across Alaska uh, have different uh, needs and different services that, uh, uh, that are that are different, that are unique for uh, than people in the lower forty eight. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're exactly right. One thing, this wasn't in the questions. I'm going to editorialize for a second here. But one thing that I think that people overlook when it comes to indigenous populations and disability is that conceptions of disability can vary greatly between different indigenous groups. And that not every group views disability in the same way and that there is a whole culture and in some cases a belief system around that that is maybe very different from even how what mainstream American culture today might view disability or how it's you know conceptualized within the law. Um, and so I think that's an important factor to keep in mind. I don't know if any of you want to say anything about that, but thought I'd editorialize. <laughs> I think absolutely there. And I think it's important for um, folks to 
begin to uh, develop an understanding that being American Indian Alaska Native is both, yes, a, a racial category, racial ethnic category, but it's also a political category. And that our tribes, many of the tribes have uh, federal and state recognition. And that recognition is something that also brings um, some federal and state law along mm -hmm. with it. Um, and there are, you know, unique programs that are funded and uh, and required by federal law for tribal individuals. And so, um, you know, having a an understanding of yes, the the wide variety and diversity within tribal communities is important, um, but and also um, the social political histories of those communities and what that then means for our practice in disabilities work. Well, I think that's a good segue to dive into your article. So your article is in the most recent issue of DDNJ is called Disability Decolonized Indigenous Peoples Enacting Self-Determination. Um, and from what you've said before, I can kind of guess this, but I wanted to ask, and we'll start with you, Nathan, since you're the lead author here. How did you come to this topic and why is this specific issue so important? Um, it's important because this, uh, uh, the disability population uh, community within Indigenous peoples is su as super underrepresented. Um, it's a the intersection of uh, tribal populations and uh, the indigenous and the disability community have so many similar similarities that personally I didn't see until I started working on working at the at the Center for Human Development. And I will actually uh, pass the baton to Vanessa for uh, uh, how this article came to be, because it's kind of actually a funny story. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're all about. We want to hear it, right? Research just, it shows up on a page and people don't recognize there's whole narratives behind how these projects come into being. Well, I'm trying to remember the fullness of the story um, <laughs> here, um, but it, it it's a project that um, this paper is a bit of a project that that took on a life of its own. Um, so there's um, over at AUCD, there's a work group of individuals um, that had come together and I'm not I'm going to get the uh, timeline incorrect, but about a, over a year ago, um, so probably less than two years, more than one year, um, some folks were getting together and it's the Indigenous Engagement Work Group. Um, and this is a group of USAID faculty and staff and um, other USAID members who really wanted to get together and talk about um, programs and issues of Indigenous peoples. Um, and with that, um, what are some exemplar programs? What are some um, areas of best practice? How are USEDs and LENS and IDPRCs, you know, really getting into the um, engagement of our Indigenous populations and peoples? Um, what are some of the areas of improvement um, on and on? And so this is what our, our work group had wanted to, to begin talking about. And we're still finding our footing, frankly, right now. So if anybody's listening, uh, we do have quarterly meetings uh, and you can outreach to AUCD staff to um, get the, the links to those. But um, in one of our quarterly meetings, we had talked about really wanting to get more information out into the literature uh, 
about Indigenous peoples' needs um, and our, those programs that are currently occurring that are um, particularly developed by tribal communities um, and enacted you know, for and with Indigenous individuals with disabilities. And so, um, so with that, we thought, okay, that that's, you know, that's something that we ought to do. And we had some um, folks that were interested in the idea. And then at the same time, the uh, call for abstracts of this special issue came out. And I said, hey, I can write up a little something and um, pitch it around to the entire work group. And we'll see who would like to participate in this. And, um, and we we're really fortunate to get a nice group of individuals that um, represent a big swath, I think, a nice uh, cross cut of that um, Indigenous engagement work group. And, um, and we have co-authors on this paper that are um, Indigenous disabilities um, researchers and, um, and then also allies. Um, and we were really fortunate, right, to, to have those voices um, come across. And as we were developing this paper, um, a lot of other things were happening in our lives. Uh, this was during the pandemic, and, um, and several of us were getting swamped um, by those things. And the deadline um, was fast approaching for the full article. And in a panic, um, I reached out to Nathan, one of my colleagues over at CHD, and I said, you know, Nathan, I know we've been talking about writing, um, you know, getting you involved in writing some um, some publications. Would you like to hop on this work group with me? And, um, and you know, I know you have um, interest as well as an, as an Indigenous researcher in these topics. Nathan's a LEND coordinator, um, heavily involved with our LEND program. Um, he's been working with one of our Indigenous LEND faculty um, and um, also is doing some work in bioethics. And I thought this would be, um, you know, another aspect of, of development. Um, maybe, you know, maybe, um, but it's all extra. And so I, I, you know, reached out to Nathan and I, I said, if you have some time, would you mind um, helping me out with this and helping this work group out? And he really kindly said, sure. And I, you know, wiped the sweat off my brow um, and, <laughs> and in my panic and went, okay. And, um, and it was really, you know, just a, again, a big blessing to be able to bring somebody in um, with fresh eyes to these concepts that we were passing back and forth um, in our, in our work group and, um, and having, having his, you know, viewpoint on it and also, you know, really having a chance to have um, something that I think is really important, which is the intergenerational um, viewpoints on, on these things. Because many of us that are on that byline are, um, are a little bit more seasoned, right? <laughs> we, we've seen a little bit uh, more of the, the, um, the earth passing the sun than, um, than Nathan <laughs> has. And, um, and so with that, you know, I think it's so important to, to really provide opportunities for people to be involved in these different ways of disseminating, to get different voices out into the literature, um, but also for, for us um, that are a little bit more seasoned to 
work with somebody who's going to have an energy and excitement, a um, different point of view on these matters. And, um, and that's refreshing, you know, um, so that's something that, that also is there. So yeah, Nathan joined the team um, and really put in a lot of effort and, and he's first author on this paper. Um, it's Nathan, I don't know if you want to talk about, you know, how it feels to have your first published paper. Um, but that's something that, you know, is also a big joy of mine. And of I think so many, I can speak on behalf of our co-authors, you know, to also be able to support an Indigenous researcher and reaching that achievement and milestone, you know, it's that achievement unlock type of idea. And, uh, <laughs> and it was really lovely to be able to, you know, do that with, with Nathan. Yeah, it was a, it was a really great experience. And, uh, well, I work with Vanessa all the time. So whenever we get a new project, I'm always excited, especially with something that's, uh, like this, or something that kind of combines the two worlds that I work in. And uh, I remember when our, our conversation, when this paper, when you uh, when we first talked about writing this paper and you're like, okay, so we have this work group, we're all pretty busy. Uh, we have an abstract, but we need it. We need a paper and it also needs to be done kind of soon. And so I was like, you know what, let's, <laughs> let's get, let's get to it. I'm excited. I think uh, it was a, it was a great process. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was a lot of fun writing. It was a, a little hard to write too. Like there was parts that was that uh, I had a little bit of an emotional response, uh, getting it, uh, putting it on paper and putting my ideas down. And it was, uh, it felt really good once it was done. And it was felt really, it was really exciting to be part of this team. Yeah, that's amazing. That just that mentorship is so incredibly important. And I think we overlook just how important it is to be pulling in right people with lived experience and, and new people, new researchers and others and teaching them, right. That this is a process that you can do, but it can be very intimidating if you don't have right. A group of people helping you navigate that. So that's really exciting. Congratulations, Nathan. I didn't realize this was your first, so we're mm -hmm. honored to have published it. <laughs> oh, thank you. This is, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, well, so we don't want to give away everything in the article because we do want people to go read it. But um, you do talk about this idea of decolonization within it. And one of the things that I'm curious about is um, how can researchers, educators, service providers, you know, really work to decolonize their programs? What are some practical examples of practices or policies that they could put in place that would help enhance self-determination? Okay. Um, well, I think there's a, a couple different things to, to bear in mind. You know, decolonization isn't a metaphor, it's an action. And with that, um, there's, there's some education that we can all do. Um, and it's something that I feel like I'm constantly um, practicing. And this is, uh, this is educating ourselves as to what what are those um, histories of the people that we're working with, you know, these communities that we're working with. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, the indigenous communities, indigenous nations, they, they are tribal nations. They have uh, their own forms of government. There's government to government relationships with, in, with tribal nations. Um, and with that, there are policies and procedures that we need to follow, not just 
for moral obligation, but we legally need to follow these things. And, um, and so upholding the sovereignty, the right of those nations, of tribal nations to uh, enact their laws and do what they need to do as nations is really important. Um, and it's necessary. It's not just that it's nice, but it's necessary in, mm-hmm. in practice, um, in our practices, you know, becoming aware of colonial history. So um, what has happened um, to the groups of people um, what laws and uh, practices have affected individuals and, and really change the norms, change the ways that people go about living their lives, uh, why people might feel stigma in certain ways, and what are these areas of you know, systematic oppression and, um, and concerns there where people have been treated um, and policies have been in place that have deliberately uh, forced or, or moved different people in different spaces in the world, doing things a certain way, prohibition, you know, stopping um, things like the sharing of um, using one's language, their their language of uh, their native language, um, and then uh, how that then can be um, internalized to the individual, what that looks and feels like for a person. Um, so I think it's important to to have that recognition, but also come to a reckoning, right? Um, Move into a space of now that I know that, what what ought I to do? And what are those practices and policies that we can put in place uh, within our institutions to directly account for um, these, you know, uh, historical disadvantages? And so with that, it's things like hiring, right? It's to think about our, uh, where do we recruit for our staff? And uh, what types of training might we need to do? How how might we need to um, work with different communities? Uh, what are the appropriate ways of doing that? What have they already been doing in their own self-determination? Um, and asking those questions of how can we change? Um, how can we be of support in um, so those are some of the things that that immediately come to my mind when I think about the process of, of um, engaging in decolonizing uh, mm-hmm. within the work that that I've been fortunate enough to do in my life. Yeah, yeah. Nathan, what are your thoughts? Um, I th- I think Vanessa summarized it beautifully. Oh, <laughs> one thing that I wanted to mention though is that there are already programs that are kind of in place that are uh, uh, attempting to decolonize. Uh, uh, academic institutions like the Oete circles that we talked about in the paper mm-hmm. and CISA that exists up here in Alaska. And there are uh, there are programs and there are uh, institutions that are actively decolonized and they are actively making culturally appropriate uh, systems to uh, and services available for uh, indigenous peoples and um, and specifically indigenous peoples with disability yeah so every every article and i mean you've kind of you've kind of talked about this earlier but every research project every writing project there's it right it's a process (laughs) and there's a personal but also a political and also right a social aspect to that and one of the things that we like to do here is kind of put a picture 
of what that process is like. So although you've talked about sort of mentoring Nathan into this and kind of your your thought process and coming up with the article, were there other memorable aspects of writing this article? Funny events, exciting discoveries, um, new collaborations that came out of it that you're really excited about pursuing as you move forward? I think one of the funny events was when we when we first uh, jumped on this project together. Like we, like I mentioned, it was a, a a quick turnaround for this paper, which was uh, exciting and fun for uh, uh, for this project. Um, but one uh, one aspect of the paper actually was when we were when we were writing it and we were talking about uh, some of the ideas that we. Uh, wanted to mention and how deep we wanted to go with some of the uh, with some of the history and some of the um, atrocities that have taken place over over time. And I mentioned earlier that there was kind of I had a, did kind of a, an emotional response writing some of this and just being able to talk it out with Vanessa as not just as a mentor but as just like a this is how I'm feeling this is how I am reacting to writing this like if how would uh how would a reader react to this especially if someone that's like uh doesn't have the same uh experiences that i have mm -hmm. and just being able to talk that through uh with vanessa was really powerful and important and i don't think i could have there, there there was a part there was definitely parts where we when we were writing that i was like i i really needed guidance on how much we wanted to put on the history side of this paper and it was really it was really nice to talk that through and also get the emotions uh just to talk through the emotions with Vanessa and, and uh uh and yeah <laughs> I think oh that's so that is so important I think to recognize and I think it's something that we overlook when we talk about participatory research is that there is emotion and things right and as researchers when you're in academic programs you're taught to be objective and to separate emotion from it and everything else but when it's part of your lived experience you can't avoid that right and so that's an additional layer that you have to navigate and i i just appreciate you sharing that nathan that's um yeah that's i think something that we don't talk about enough so vanessa what about you um, you know, I, for the, for me, this paper was one where um, we're building community, and so with that, I think um, I think I was just really excited and nervous, right, <laughs> to um, to work with these scholars that I haven't met in person. You know, when I look at the the names of the people that we were working with. Um, that were our co-authors that we were receiving feedback from, that we were um, engaging in like a description of programs that they had developed through their life course, their histories um, with their communities. It's, it's really hard um, to have that intimacy, um, particularly when you're in these long distance <laughs> academic relationships. <laughs> and so, um, so with that, it's, it was a, um, a bit of a, a, it felt like a tricky balance of trying to um, meet people where they're at, develop that community, develop that camaraderie, um, to have an integration of the different thoughts and perspectives, 
of our, our co-authors. I mean, that's true anytime, um, but particularly when the story that you're telling is a, a shared story, um, it, was, it was a toughie. And, um, and like Nathan said, we've, you know, for some of us, these are, we're talking about our histories. We're talking about, you know, these things, and we don't want to get stuck only in the um, trauma of, of colonialism, but also in, to highlight the beauty, the impact of tribal self-determination, of individual self-determination on how we move forward. And not only what good work is happening now, but what that can and ought to look like in the future, you know? And so that was, um, that was also just really fun um, to, to have an opportunity to talk about aspirations and to, you know, get that energy going um, within ourselves and, and across this, this team of, of folks that are, you know, in very different states and different fields um, and different walks of life. So, you know, that, that was energizing as well as nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is all of the above. So we'll kind of go back to the question that we have. So again, we want people to go check out the article. We want people to read it, but you know, if in two or three sentences here, what's the main message that you want readers to take from this article? For me, uh, self-determination is vital and, uh, App, the application of it in disability in the disability community is uh, choice in education, choice in services, choice in um, every aspect of their life. And for the tribal for tribal populations, uh, tribal sovereignty uh, is self determination for them. And knowing and Vanessa touched on this earlier about having that government to government relationship with even uh, between tribes and with the United States and between uh, tribal nations. And um, my last main point would probably be that the, that there are programs out there that are actively decolonizing uh, academic spaces and uh, finding them and implementing their practices and their policies is something that can be done for programs that already exist. Vanessa, what about you? Would you say the same or would you, uh, are, are there other aspects you'd like readers to take from it too? Oh, I think I'm very much in alignment with, um, with Nathan. Um, I would say it just a little bit differently um, because we're different people and we think yeah. about things a little bit differently. And, um, and with that, it's just that, uh, you know, tribal communities are experts on how they want to live and how they ought to live. And uh, individuals with disabilities, same goes. They are the experts on how they ought to be treated and what ought to be done there. Um, so back to self-determination, that uh, self-determination should be honored um, and that the, the journeys of individuals and the journeys of communities are important. Uh, recognizing history and the effect on um, the now and the future is integral in um, and really doing work in a, a way that is collaborative, that is respectful, and um, and that absolutely the uh, way to go about this is to, uh, I think, to think about the colonial impacts of our mm -hmm. lives um, and how we can really seek to dismantle those areas where we're thinking about um, the value of people by what they can do and who what they can make and um, and who they are in the power positions, 
and um, and we ought to go back to um, our relationship models. Yeah, that is so important. I totally agree. That's why that's why I love this article so much. <laughs> this is truly uh, I get to read all of them, and I get to and and I like all of them, but um, this one particularly really resonated with me in the way that you approached it and the message that you were trying to get across there. So. So a couple of last questions, and these are questions that we ask to everybody because, again, we like to know kind of who are the researchers out there doing this work. So what motivates you to do this work? Why do you do what you do? Because this is hard and it can be depressing and it can really drag you down. So why do you do, why do, you do this? I think we are, when we're members of communities, um, we need to take care of one another. and the way that I feel like the, the things that I have talents in um, are kind of unique and weird. Um, <laughs> some people can, can do other amazing things. Um, my brain works in such a way and my, um, and my abilities are around um, inquiring about things and, um, and working with groups to um, get to our shared understandings. And then from there, what can we do to change this for what we think is better? Mm -hmm. um, not just for now, but for the future, our future generations. And so with that, it, it drew me to public health. It drew me to population health. It drew me to um, areas where I was working in policy. And um, and for me, I, I do that with the community that I'm most um most most attached to and that's um american indian alaska native communities indigenous communities um and it's also with um health systems and um by health systems i mean gosh that that's a really broad definition as well um so you know that that's what brought me to to the work that i do and why i kind of keep coming back to it um and I see myself as just being a, a supporter of um, a supporter and an amplifier, I guess, of, of what the needs of communities are and, um, and trying to get that to work and provide evidence um, for, for programs um, and people. And, um, and hopefully with that, um, see some growth and change. Um, Thank you. Nathan, what about you? Um, my motivations are my family and my uh, and making sure that I have something that I can give back to my community and um, and my and my family. <laughs> I um, as a as a researcher, I actually am newer to the field of disability research and uh, being able to. Uh, be part of 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 this work and being welcomed and being invited to participate in projects like this by like by Vanessa motivates me to just be the best researcher that I can and put forward uh, the best work that I can uh, and giving something that that can that can last and that can be used by other researchers that are starting off in their career just like me and other researchers that have never examined the intersections of uh, of these two populations before and want to uh, 
and want to learn more and want to uh, get involved. Yeah, that is so incredibly important in that notion of intersectionality, which again, you know, 20 years ago, we never even heard that word. And yet, as we've become, I think, a little more articulate around these issues, that's some, that's become increasingly more important. And I think your article does a great job of really looking at those intersections between disability and indigenous cultures. It's really an outstanding example, I think, of how to address that in an effective way. So the last question here, it's one, again, we ask to everybody, but, you know, most people who are in this field, they're always trying to improve and figure out ways to do things better. So the question is, what is one thing that you've been doing to make your work, and that's broad, more inclusive and accessible? One thing for me is um, reaching out to the platforms that we use and ask, just asking their support to help help me out. Um, I'm uh, involved with LEND, I'm, uh, the LEND training coordinator, and uh, the past two years we've been on Zoom, and which is a, a great platform. It keeps, it keeps a lot of people together, but it's not very accessible. If mm-hmm. we want to use, if you want to join a breakout room, you have to click it, and not everybody has the ability to move the mouse to click to join a, a breakout room. And so reaching out to these uh, companies and just being like, here's my problem. I need, I, I need some assistance, I need some help. And whether that, and our solution for that was to um, make the main room uh, a breakout room and having, uh, and then breaking out people into separate breakout rooms. And so that um, just so we can, make sure that everybody can participate in land and participate in uh, in the activities that we're doing. Um, and same with, uh, same with captioning and just making sure that uh, we have captions for land and making sure that uh, we know how to turn them on and people and giving, uh, giving people the ability to know the services that we are, that we can provide. Hmm. That's great. Vanessa, what about you? You know, I'm really interested in um, developing community-based research and Mm -hmm. community-based researchers. And this is something that I've been um, attempting to do throughout my career, Um, really work with community members that are interested in doing research and evaluation and and giving them the skills um, that are more of the academic side and honoring the skills that they have and the reasons why we work with community members, right? And um, and so with that, I've been um, really seeking to develop partnerships within the um, community of individuals that experience intellectual and developmental disabilities, um, see who's interested in our local community in, um, in what questions they have, um, how we might what methods might be most appropriate to answer those questions from their point of view, not from my point of view, really. And then um, and then working with them on, okay, well, how can we develop um, something that's fundable here? And how can we um, work together in a manner that is appropriate, you know, and also challenging some of the methodologies that um, and practices that happen within a research and evaluation environment. You know, um, Nathan was talking about how 
Zoom really privileges some of us that have certain um, areas of access, right? For internet access, but also in, in the way of mobility. Um, certain types of research methodologies also privilege uh, certain people and activities, you know? And so I've been uh, working with others in, in a couple you said to talk about and to start thinking about and challenge um, our, ourselves as researchers to, you know, talk about things like interview practice, um, the, the practice of doing interviews and, um, and how we often encourage masking um, mm -hmm. as trainers of individuals uh, that are doing interviews uh, to keep a mod, you know, a neutral point of view, our bodies in a, um, again, in a neutral manner to, to hide a lot of the um, things that one might do or have as part of your being. Um, and is that necessary? You know, um, is that helpful? What does that do to an individual um, that as an interviewer to really question these things and to, um, to think about how can we be respectful and ethical when we're including our community members that have IDDs in as researchers? Um, and there are some ways that I think research practice is extremely harmful, like requiring somebody to mask. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of funny how we're, we even have research coming out these days showing that's harmful, right? Masking right. those emotions and pushing them down and everything is not just a way to maintain objectivity. It actually is not healthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's one of the things I think an area of, you know, um, that's really important to me as a researcher is to develop a positive community of researchers, you know, of, of our staff members that we we spend a lot of hours at work, right? Um, and with that, I, I want those hours to be ones that are well spent in a person's life that are um, where you're feeling good about that work, that you're yeah. in a collaborative environment and 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 a one where you're fully respected for all that you are. And um, and so with that, that's the the type of thing I'm trying to make myself aware of. Um, and then also bring that awareness to uh, my my community and my group of people that I get to work with and um, and hopefully get correction as well as to what ought to occur versus what is occurring. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that is so important, right? As a researcher, listening and learning, not just right telling and the, mm -hmm. it's a different model though than what we've been taught it's mm -hmm. a more it's a it's a more organic model and i would say even maybe even a more indigenous model right <laughs> to more interactive than the top down sort of i'm the researcher i'm going to tell you what needs to happen so mm -hmm. that's so incredibly important well i want to thank you both for your time today um this has been just such an enlightening conversation. And I'm, again, just grateful for your contribution and for the work that you've done here. And and just thank you. Thank you so much for having us. It's great yeah, talking to you. Yeah, you. You are welcome. So that's it for our conversation today. I'd like to thank Vanessa and Nathan for their time and just for the incredible work and insights they were able to provide today. I learned so much from this conversation and it really was a privilege to visit with them. Uh, again, I would like to encourage you to go check out their article. Please go download it. Please go download all the other. There are 12 outstanding articles in this most recent issue 
of DDNJ, all focusing on different aspects of diversity. And again, um, I think it's incredibly important work and a huge contribution um, to the work that we're doing in the dis in the developmental disabilities network. So, so here at the end, I would like to thank DDNJ managing editor and author insights podcast producer Alex Shewal for her hard work to get this podcast out. Uh, Alex has recently, within the last year, taken on um, the role of managing editor, and she was integral to getting this most recent issue out, uh, and we're excited to have her on board. I would like to say that um, if you have questions or concerns about the podcast or the journal or uh, inquiries as to how you can contribute, uh, please reach out to Alex. You can contact her at editor dot ddnj at aggies that's a-g-g-i-e-s dot usu dot edu so editor dot ddnj at aggies dot usu dot edu uh, we'd also like to thank the utah state university institute for disability research policy and practice for their financial and in-kind support for this podcast and the journal the journal also receives support from the Utah State University libraries and digital commons, and we are grateful for all that they do to support our work. As I mentioned earlier, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, wherever you listen to your podcasts, it should be available. Please leave us a rating and review. Please share with your friends and colleagues. This helps us get the word out so that we can, um, yeah, have a bigger impact. You can also learn more about DDNJ, the journal, at the DDNJ website, which is digitalcommons.usu.edu backslash DDNJ. And you can go there and find episodes of this podcast. You can also go there and link to transcripts of this podcast in English and Spanish and learn more about our podcast guests. So anyway, I want to thank you all for tuning in and for listening this far. Thanks so much. Keep up the good work. You're making a difference. And we want you, know, you to know that what you do matters. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode, which will be another interview from this special edition on diversity, equity, and inclusion. It will be an interview with Elizabeth Morgan and Ida Ward on their article about working with Black families with children on the autism spectrum. It's also an exciting conversation. We're excited to share that with you. So thank you and tune in next time.